Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Full Time Whistle podcast with me, Callum Brown. Before we get into this one, I'd just like to say a massive thank you for all the support on episode 1. It is greatly appreciated. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by legendary football commentator and presenter Rob McLean. Myself and Rob discuss his 40-year career in the sports media industry, from his early days covering Sir Alex Ferguson's famous Aberdeen side, reporting on Scotland at World Cups, and his iconic commentary, which has made him one of the most recognisable voices in Scottish football. I hope you enjoy. So Rob, delighted to have you on. Thank you for coming on. How's things? Yeah, good thanks, Gallum. Yeah, the, the sun's been shining recently, so that helps. Um, and I'm fortunate that where I stay, basically, I'm out of town in the wild, so I'm able to do a bit of walking and stuff like that. So I really, I mean, I really feel for people at the moment who are all cooped up, um, you know, and can't get out, and maybe they've got screaming winds around them as well. Um, and it's it's real pressure. It's a, it's a horrible time. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm surviving. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad at all. Yeah, just uh, finish uni and things like that. So, just just sort of keeping myself to myself, trying to look for jobs. And you've got more Paul looking after you again now, haven't you? No, no, yeah, back back at my mum and dad. So um, it's a bit it's a bit different, but I'm enjoying it. It's, it's getting a bit um, tedious now, you know. With with obviously you wanting to get back to university or you wanting to go out and do things with your pals, but I know, and you're missing your football, obviously. So am I. Yeah, definitely. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, must be. Must yeah, I mean, missing it. Yeah, miss, miss, certainly missing it financially at the moment. Yeah. Um, everybody's in all sorts of trouble as well. So uh, you know, that's that's not a woe is me moment at all. And yeah, I mean, missing football because I because I, I basically just love love football, and I'm very fortunate to do the job I do um, because I, I I love going to games and and watching it. You know. And, and I miss it on the telly as well because, you know, even though you're off and at home, you sort of think, all right, I'm at home, I'll, you know, I can go to work and I'm at home, but I'll watch football. Oh, no, there's no football. <laughs> anyway, but of course, there are these, they're showing classic old games now and all the rest of it. And, you know, some of that is, is really good. Any football is good football and, and it's good to have a wee chat about it as well, isn't it? Yeah. So um, if, I, if I could just take you back to sort of your, your early football and memories, how, how did you get into into football did you play as a kid did you go to watch yeah thanks for saying long before i was born in that question i was a, that's appreciated um yeah i mean I, i've always loved sports um from being a kid i played just about everything i could and um yeah played football and then i'm from Invergordon, so um, Ross Kenty was my local team and so i used to like play for the school in the morning and then we watch Ross Kenty who were in the highland league at that point in the afternoon Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, play played at an amateur and a wee bit of junior football, that sort of level. Um, my my main thing was kicking people. To be honest, that was that was as subtle as I got on a on a football pitch. But but absolutely loved it. You know, played fives until I um, ruptured my Achilles tendon, which wasn't great. Um, but most people thought that was a sign from above that I should pack in because I was so bad at it that I should pack it from and just just start just talk about it instead. So yeah, really fortunate, Callum, in that, in that I've carved out a career in you know covering football. Um, I, I feel really lucky because I, I never feel as if I've done a real job in my life. To be honest, mm-hmm. was it was it always your intention to go down that path? Was it always you know sort of looking at sports journalism, reporting, being a 
been in the media? Not really, not, not really no, because I, I mean, I, I guess I was like a lot of people coming to the end of school days and without a clue what I was going to do. I mean, I remember looking at a brochure and the, the sort of guidance classes and I had a guy in a white coat with some test tubes and I thought, oh, that looks exciting, that looks good, I'll, I'll be a chemist, you know. And so I took chemistry and physics at higher, up to higher level and everything and, and uh, goodness, you know, that, that was the only reason why and what a waste, what an absolute waste. I wish I'd done languages or something like that, but I did that. Ended up doing nothing with it. Worked in Invergordon Distillery for six months when I left school, which some would say is a good grounding for journalism anyway, <laughs> working in a distillery. Um, and then uh, I joined the Highland News up there. They were taking on sort of school leaver trainees um, and they, they sent me to Newcastle on a six-month training course, which was brilliant because Newcastle was great. And I, I learned a lot, got, got some stories in the local paper down there as a, a news reporter. And then... Went back up north, and uh, I was there for two or three years, I guess, in total, including that six months. Um, but having been in Newcastle, life in the Highlands was like slow motion uh, in comparison. Mm -hmm. So I, I was I was desperate to get away as quickly as I possibly could, um, and I went. I moved to Aberdeen at that point, and um, you know. It was like uh, the bright lights for me. I mean, coming from Gordon Aberdeen was like the, you know, it probably doesn't seem to you like the bright lights, Aberdeen, but, but for me it was. But I went there with, with no great plan. Um, so I, I kind of drove, drove a laundrette van and did all these sort of temp jobs in Aberdeen. Even though I didn't know my way around Aberdeen, I convinced the guy that ran the laundrette company that I didn't know where I was going. So he let me loose in his van sort of delivering stuff. Uh, so I did various temp jobs like that until I got a job with a news agency, a freelance news agency. Um, in Aberdeen, servicing all the papers from like the Sun to the Telegraph, radio, television. So it was news stories, whatever the top big news story, a high court murder trial or whatever in Aberdeen at the time. Mm -hmm. I would cover that, and then I would farm it out to all the various you know parts of the media. You know, so writing a completely different wham bam story for the Sun to a sort of joined up writing story for the Telegraph. So it, that was that was two years, and that was a great experience of journalism and how to write for different people and how to change the look of a story. And you know, so that was a, that was a really good learning learning curve, and, and that took me to 1981, still long before you were born, um, when North Sound Radio started in Aberdeen. So I was fortunate, timing wise, to to join North Sound, and on the first day. Uh, the head of news guy at North Sound said, who likes football? I put up my hand and he said, right, you're the commentator. Uh, oh. And that was a decision made. You know, there was no interview process. You're the commentator. Uh, and I, Aberdeen, so the, fir the first big game was Aberdeen played Ipswich uh, in the UEFA Cup, as it was. Uh, they'd, they'd won it the year before, so and Aberdeen not proceeded to knock them out. You know, so, so that was 1981. Two years later, they won the European Cup Winners' Cup in Gothenburg. So Alec Ferguson was the manager at the time. So it was just really lucky timing for me. I was probably lucky to get the job and, and lucky to be there at a point in which, I mean, I saw a, a big table recently that, that had Aberdeen. Aberdeen was ranked the best team in Europe in 1984. I mean, it's, you know, all, you know they, were, they were number one in European football mm -hmm. in 1984. It's absolutely incredible to, to, to look at that and think that that could have ever been the case. But, you know, I was, I was part of that. So I was traveling around Europe with Aberdeen. They were beating everybody. They were beating the old firm. They were the best team in Scotland and, and, and for a while, best team in Europe. So, so I, I was dead lucky in my timing, Callum, in, in terms of being there at that time when Aberdeen had such a good football team. So um, you mentioned Alex Ferguson was there, Sir Alex. Um, he's notoriously sharp in things with the media. Um, 
media friendly, you would say, but not always media friendly. Did you have any any run-ins with him? What what was he like with you? Yeah, I, th- I think I think everybody had the run-ins with well, Alex Ferguson, but I found him. He was hard, but he was fair. Uh, uh, he's a he's a good man, and and, he, and he's absolutely brilliant at what he does. I mean, you and and, I, and when I talk about those days and I reflect back, I, I realise you know the games that he played with players, you know, to, to make sure they were in the right place, and also the media, um, because I mean I, I probably interviewed him every week for about four or five years at that time, so I got to know him quite well, but could never read him because you know you made assumptions about him. If you were going down the Friday lunchtime and they'd had a good win in midweek or the previous weekend or whatever, that'd be in really good form, and you'd, you'd go in and you'd say, "What the fuck are you wanting?" You know, and you would realise that you were in trouble at that stage. But the opposite applied as well because if they had a bad result, it didn't happen very often at that stage. But if they'd had a bad result and you sort of thought, "Oh no, he's going to be a nightmare today," he'd put his arm around me and say, "Come on, Rob, how are you doing? Sit down, I'll make you a cup of tea." And you know, so he was kind of disarming in that way, and you never quite knew how you were going to get him. So he always had that little advantage over you. But, you know, I mean, he, he had such presence and he had such aura about him um, that he was, you know, I, I, I feel so privileged that I did get to know him so well. And, and I mean, cut to a few years down the road and later after he'd long left Aberdeen and I was doing a match of the day commentary at, at Old Trafford and I was done the commentary and I was just about waiting to do the interviews afterwards and he turned up and he saw me and he said, what the fuck are you doing here? And he came over and gave me a, gave me a, gave me a big hug. You know, and, you know, he, there was no reason for him to remember me because he, mm-hmm. was, he was, you know, massive by that stage in terms of where he got to. And he could have forgotten all, all about this uh, snotty-nosed reporter from North Sound <laughs> in Aberdeen. But, but you know, it's, it's a, there's something about him. You know, he remembers people, he remembers their names. I think I think in the football, it was very much like that. He knew all the wives' names, the kids' names. And he asked about them when they were ill and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, so he, there was a really caring side to him, which probably never got a lot of publicity. You know, it was all about the hairdryer and how he would throw teacups around the dressing room and all that sort of stuff, which he did. But, you know, there were two sides to him and, and uh, he knew how to work people really well. So maybe it's no great surprise that he's, you know, one of the most successful managers of all time. You touched on it there a wee bit, just about how successful Aberdeen were at the time. Did, did you feel you'd sort of landed on your feet at, at that point? You know, you're covering yeah, Aberdeen. I mean, I was, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I was, I was so lucky, Callum, to, to be there at that time. And, you know, they, so they started off by beating UEFA Cup holders. That was my first ever European football match that I'd done a commentary on at Portman Road. Then Aberdeen destroyed them back at, Pitodri. That was a really good Ipswich Town team at the time. That was kind of star-studded. Um, and two years later, they were beating Real Madrid in Gothenburg in the final of the European Cup Winners' Cup. You know, and, and as I said, becoming the number one ranked Euro- European team because the following season, not many people remember. I think in 1984, they got to the, they got to the semi-finals again of that same competition and lost lost I think to Porto um, in the last four. So. I mean, they were so hot, but I, mean, I, was, I was just a kid at that stage and, and, and that, was, that was just normality for me, was going to all these countries that I'd probably never heard of before um, in the you know, sort of Eastern European countries and all that sort of stuff in the early rounds of Europe. And but you, went, you went with expectation that Aberdeen would win and, and it was the same with playing Rangers and Celtic in, in league games and, and in cup finals and everything. I mean, Aberdeen just had this... Uh, expectation that they would they would beat Rangers and Celtic. I mean, it's incredible when you think of that then, and you compare it to the way it is now. No, oh, no, it's crazy. 
So um, you then moved to uh, report in Scotland, I believe, with the BBC. Um, was that was that a big step for you? And uh, did you still want to focus on football and sport, or was that more news based? No, the the big step really was radio to television because I, I hadn't I had done television at that stage, and, th- and this was this was me moving from a, a radio job. I mean, I was I was actually head of news at, at North Sound as well, so I was I was still doing the uh, news side of things as well as sport. But the, I decided to join uh, Reporting Scotland in Aberdeen, um, based in Aberdeen, um, because it was a chance to uh, get into television. So I was a reporter, news reporter for two years. And then um, I saw, or somebody pointed out to me, a job advertised with STV um, as, as the sports presenter on Scotland Today, as it was called then, the, the, the Tea Time News, basically, STV. And so I applied for that and I got that, and that moved me from Aberdeen down to Glasgow. And um, so that was 1988, I think it was. And then, so I went to the World Cup in 1990 with STV working for them, which was absolutely fantastic, you know, so, and uh, much to their, um, try to find the right word here, disappointment, <laughs> I left them after, have, they haven't they haven't taken me to the World Cup for a month and paid all my expenses. Um, I, I jumped ship and uh, joined the BBC immediately afterwards, so that didn't get down too well, as you can imagine. Yeah, so you, you mentioned there, you, you, you got to cover World Cups, um, the 1991, I believe you were at France, 98 as well. Yeah, what were they like? They must have been brilliant experiences. Going going out there for the full the full month, probably. Oh yeah, I mean just just incredible, and I, I probably wish now that I'd appreciated it more at the time because I think at the time Scotland were in this run of qualifying for most of them, be it be it European Championships or World Cups. So you kind of you were starting to expect that it was going to happen. Scotland, as you say, were there in 1990, and we were back there in in 1998 in France. Played, with, played against Brazil. I commentated on that match for television, the opening match of the, the World Cup and the Stade de France packed out, playing the superstars of Brazil. Um, you know, it was just amazing. And in fact, I, went, I, I did go to another World Cup as well at, which got, in 2002 because I was with part of the BBC network team at that stage commentating. Uh, that was in uh, Japan and Korea in 2002. So, you know, all fantastic experiences, but obviously all the more special if Scotland were there, you know. So, so 1990 w- was great. I mean, it was so glamorous, you know, all these fantastic stadiums in Italy. And then uh, France, you know, we were based in the south of France for a month with the BBC in 1998. And, um, you know, it was just, it was brilliant. And it just, it finished too early, but uh, great to be there. I mean, you know, we, we were moaning at that stage about not qualifying for the knockout stages, but... <laughs> We'd just yeah. be happy to be there now. Yeah, I, I was about to say you're you're growing up and you know you're participating in all these um, World Cups as as presenter and things like that. And there's not been one in my lifetime, so I mean you're very lucky in that sense as well. So tell me, what year were you born? Make me feel bad. Nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine, right? Okay. Um, which was the year that Scotland played England in the playoffs? Was that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Paul Scholes. Scored two goals at Hamden, then Scotland won at Wembley. It didn't quite make it through. Yeah. So, I mean, that's amazing. So, you, that, that is incredible, isn't it? That, because, you know, you, that your lifespan and Scotland haven't made it um, to major finals. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's incredible. It's so disappointing. And, and actually, in recent years, you know, it's become easier to qualify as well, but, but we still can't do it. Hopefully, when football is back on the map again, which is maybe a wee while away yet, but 
um, you know, hopefully we can beat Israel and, and, and get in the back door to Euro 2021, or maybe by then it will become Euro 2022, but the time we actually play it, but I'm not sure. Uh, Aber- Aberdeen haven't done much either, to be fair, since then. So, um, But um, you, you then became BBC's main commentator, um, and obviously in that presenting role. So do you remember your, your first game doing that, and, and how did all that come about? Well, that was, yeah, I mean, so, so it was after, after the World Cup in 1990, and at that time there was a, a lot of competition between BBC and STV. Uh, there was a lot of money flying around as well. People were poached back and forth. You know, it was that sort of stuff that was going on at that time. So um, Jock Brown, who was a commentator at the time, Hazel Irvin, who was uh, a sports presenter as well at that stage, um, the three of us were all sort of uh, poached from STV back to BBC in 1990. And there was a there was a program called Friday Sports Scene, which was a Friday night sports preview show. STV had had their own version of that as well. There was real competition between the two TV companies, um, so it was a really vibrant industry at that point. I mean, it was really lively. It was a lot of money getting spent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was back at the BBC. I was presenting. I was commentating. And people always ask me, Callum, whether I prefer presenting or commentating. And my answer usually is that you know I'm I'm really happy to have done both. Uh, mm. It's been nice not to choose. I've really done whatever anyone's wanted to be, me to do any particular time. It's never really been my choice, but but it's been good to do both. I like, I enjoy doing both, and I think one helps the other because they're all about the job is all about fluency. You know, the the the, the job is about knowing what you're knowing what you're talking about and being able to do it fluently. You know, so that nobody sees the join. Um, you know, that's the that's the plan. So so one kind of helps the other, and you know. I'm I'm happy I'm happy to to have done both through my career. You're mentioning commentary there. What what's a typical sort of week leading up to a game for you in terms of doing your research and looking at the the history of the teams and are you heavily stats based or anything? Like no, that? I think you've seen my you've probably seen one of my stat sheets. So oh. it's on the back, on the back of a fag packet. Uh, no, it's not right. But but I I, I tend to you know I I, ha- I do I do prepare. People at the BBC sometimes give me stick because they, they reckon I don't do any research at all. But but I actually, I, I do, I have to do it because I don't feel good at a game unless I've got a certain amount of knowledge about the game in my head. So, you know, stats, but stats can bore me to death, to be honest. You know, I hear loads of commentators who can't say anything without a stat every second sentence. And, and it's tedious for me. It's That's not my cup of tea at all. I think, you you know, yeah, relevant stats great. You know, now and again, you know, just drop them in where they're really relevant, where they mean something. A lot of a lot of stats mean bugger all, to be honest. So, um, you know, I, I'm that's 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 not my style. But but you do need to be prepared because once you've done your preparation, then then I can just sit and relax and watch the game. I've scribbled, I'll have scribbled some notes, but hopefully they're in my head because you don't really want to be taking off your, your eye off the game for long. Uh, at all, because you know, sod's law means you're going to miss something if you look down. So I, I want to, I want it in my head really, and I can just you know recall it hopefully when something happens that's relevant. Um, but you just want to uh, soak up the atmosphere and be sort of swept along on the atmosphere of the game. Um, and you know, I mean, I do TV and radio commentary, and they're two completely different things. Although essentially you're still describing football action, mm-hmm. they're. In radio, you're painting the whole picture because nobody can see anything. In telly, people can see just about everything. So you, it's much more sparing. And, you know, it's what you're saying is designed to enhance the pictures, 
you know, rather than tell everybody about every coffin splutter that's happening. So they're two different disciplines. Um, and, um, you know, uh, but preparation is at the heart of, of everything. So you've mainly been at BBC since obviously moving from North Sound, but there was a spell, I think maybe four or five year spell. You moved to five Satanta. Yeah. So um, they, they were putting a, a lot of money into the Scottish game, uh, providing decent coverage. How, how did all that come about? You're going to reduce me to tears mentioning Satanta because I'm going to be <laughs> thinking about the moment they went down the tubes in 2009 and a lot of my money went with it. Um, but I mean, that was a really, that was a really exciting time. I, you know, it was funny because when they first started, I'd be getting in a taxi and the driver would look in the mirror and he says, are you with that new mob? Uh, he says, St. Andrews, Sinatra, you know, no, the, nobody could pronounce it, the name mm. of the company. And by the end of it, all the taxi drivers had subscribed to Satanta. Everybody could moan about it because uh, I had actually bought into it by then. I think Satanta had about 250,000 subscribers, which is a pretty good number in Scotland by the time they were finished. And I thought the coverage was really good. I thought, you know, I, I thought it was great. But they just made some schoolboy errors uh, in business terms and, you know, went down the tubes. Um, which is a shame because I thought it was working well in Scotland and, and obviously they were pl ploughing a lot of money in, into Scottish football which was brilliant for the game and in, I mean basically the game's never recovered from them going under um, mm -hmm. because there's never been that amount of money uh, coming into the game since so you know the quality of player at that time was much better because the clubs were getting more TV money um, and you know it's been on the slippery slope ever since and obviously because of what's going on at the moment with the coronavirus. Um, Scottish football has got massive problems to overcome now. Would, would you say it was a surprise what happened with Satanta? Obviously, uh, Scottish football has probably been affected a lot. And you look at, you know, down south with the, the sky money and things like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's when you look back and you think, I mean, obviously long before your time, but I mean, when Graham Souness arrived at Rangers, and Rangers were buying players, were outbidding English clubs to buy players. I mean, that just would never happen and will never happen again in Scotland. Even more recently when Celtic, well, when Rangers were buying all the Dutch players and everything, and uh, Martin O'Neill was buying £6 million players from English football like Sutton and Hartson and Larson and these, these sort of people, Neil Lennon. Now, Larson doesn't qualify because he was, he was cheap from, from Feyenoord, but they were spending a lot of money. Uh, I mean, that's just... Uh, it's almost hard to believe that ever happened when you think about how it is now. Um, and it's, yeah, I can't remember what your question was, actually. <laughs> um, no, I was just, I was just um, asking if you, if you were surprised that, you know, what, what happened to Satanta because obviously it was going so well. Yeah, well, it was going well, but, but it was, I guess, uh, you know, while Satanta did start their football coverage with Scotland and that got them established and it, and it became a big success, their future was always dependent on English football. And, th and at one point, they had a third of all English live games and Sky had, the, had two thirds. And that kind of worked mm -hmm. uh, because that was like maybe 22, 25 games a season. And, and that was all, you know, that kind of, that was a number that kind of worked. Uh, it was maybe a bigger number than that, actually. But in, the, in one round of bidding, they then lost a chunk of it. So instead of a, a third, they had a sixth or something. So it was fewer games. It wasn't really marketable. Um, and I think they missed out by sort of petty cash. You know, in terms of the bidding, you know, it wasn't like tens of millions and stuff that they lost out by. It was something really small in the great scheme of things because even then English money in English football was crazy. But 
you know, they should have, if they pushed it and got it and kept what they had, they'd probably still be around now. I'd probably still be working for them. Um, but they, they, they just blew it. And, and maybe that was down to their naivety and inexperience because there were a couple of Irish guys who'd just gone into it and built it all up. Uh, but they didn't have the experience and the know-how of a Sky or a BT or an ESPN or a whoever, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think their lack of business experience told at that time. And because they they kind of lost the chunk of English football that they had, that was the kind of do- the, the dominoes collapsed at that point. I mean, they'd been into everything. They were into they bought remember the English Premiership rugby, um, you know, which was a lot of money. They had a golf channel. You know, they, they probably did too much too soon. Um, and they didn't really get themselves consolidated enough before they were, I think, probably overexcited. Oh, well, if this channel, we'll have that channel, we'll, we'll do everything. Whereas maybe they should just have concentrated on one thing and made sure that worked and they might still be around. But I mean, it, God, it, it costly to a lot of people, uh, myself included, but, but really costly for Scottish football, which hasn't recovered. So you, you then moved back to the BBC um, doing, doing things like sports scene. You're, you're now freelance. You work for BT now and again, obviously doing the European Knights, uh, Celtic and Rangers. Um, so well, what is sort of freelance like for you? Do you find that better to, not, not being tied down as such to a company, but do you feel freelance is a bit better for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose there are pros and cons of it. You know, it's quite nice to have the solidity and security of a, of a permanent job um, versus, uh, you know, maybe sometimes not quite knowing what you're going to be doing next. I guess I've been freelance effectively for most of my working life, with the exception of that five years at Satanta, when I was on a sort of salaried job. Um, although my first spell at BBC, I, I was sometimes working six days a week. Um, you know, so although I was freelance, it was if, you know, effectively, um, you know, I was kind of full-time there. Uh, whereas now, I, I guess I work for a lot of different organisations, including BBC, BT, Ladbrokes, when they were sponsoring um, the SPFL, that's coming to an end um, quite soon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, pros and cons for both. Um, yeah, I quite, like, I quite like the variety, to be honest, of, of working with lots of people. The, the BT stuff has been really good. Um, you know, European games are, are special. Uh, covered Celtic in the Champions League uh, two or three years ago. Done Rangers in the, in the Europa. Um, at some amazing games and, and I love travelling as well I've been really fortunate in that respect I've done, I've done a lot of travelling I've got to lo- gone to loads of places that I probably never would have gone to if it wasn't for football um, and it just gives you an opportunity to see somewhere and then you might say alright oh, I like this I want to go back for a holiday uh, like I was in Seville with Celtic uh, when they were in the UEFA Cup final yeah. and, um, and it was absolutely teeming with people at the time but I thought alright okay quite like this really green sort of city looked really nice so I went back with my wife in the October for a holiday, you know, having sampled it um, at the UEFA Cup final. So, I mean, traveling is such a, a mind-broadening experience. It's, it's brilliant, you know. So, so that, that's been a real perk of my job. Well, what are the sort of, your sort of favorite places that you've been? Do you have any favorite games that you've covered or anything? Um, well, I mean, that, that game in France, the, the first game of the 1998 World Cup was special for so many reasons. Uh, Scotland, Brazil, um, you know, and there was that moment where we looked up at the scoreboard. Well, you didn't because you weren't around then, but you, know, you looked up at the scoreboard after John Collins scored his penalty and uh, it was Scotland won, Brazil won, and everyone was hoping we could just freeze the scoreboard at that point. You know, that was, that was special. Obviously, Aberdeen winning the European Cup Winners' Cup was just such a crazy thing to have happened and was great 
a real great experience for me to have been there as well. I mean, Scotland, England, uh, I did that for STV at Hamden when those two Lee Griffiths goals uh, and Harry Kane uh, spoiling it all at the end. You know, I mean, that was that that was just that was an incredible day, and it was just you know it was glorious and heartbreaking within the space of a couple of Absolutely, yeah, it was yet again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, that, that in Seville with Celtic at the, at the UEFA, UEFA Cup final, um, so many special games, special moments. Um, I was at the, um, I, was, I mentioned the 2002 World Cup, I covered the uh, England-Brazil quarterfinal in uh, the 2002 in Japan. I'd done three weeks in Korea commentating on games and then I was moved over to Japan for a week. And uh, maybe with a bit of a sense of humour, they gave me a job as reporting, doing the aftermatch report interviews uh, for Scotland, for England, Brazil, and of course uh, I was sitting among England supporters. So when Michael Owen scored and they all got up and they were all going bananas, and I was sort of stand, sitting with my arms folded, and I thought I'd probably better, for my safety, I'd probably better get up and join in here and look as if I enjoyed that goal. And then, of course, I think it was Rivaldo equalised and then Ronaldinho scored that amazing goal over David Seaman from the halfway line just about. Uh-huh. Uh, and, of course, the England fans were distraught at that point. And I was, I was, on, I was sort of saying, yeah, beauty. And I, but I, had to, I had to sort of keep myself sort of sat down in the stand among all of them. And then, then afterwards, I had, to, I had to interview the England fans when they were knocked out of the World Cup. So you can imagine I was putting on my English home counties accent to try and stop them recognising where I came from. But was this, I was interviewing a few fans, and this guy eventually said to me, he says, uh, uh, you fucking enjoyed that, didn't you? You know, I can tell in your accent, you fucking enjoyed that, didn't you, mate? You know, not at all a good chap. I'm distraught that you're out. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, tech, technology sort of evolved um, massively in football, obviously, from, from, when, you, from when you first started. Um, more, more television cameras at every game. You've got social media and things like that now. Do you feel like when you do interviews, obviously in the past, do you, do you feel now players are more sort of media coached and they're not as, sorry, they're not giving you real or more, more real answers as opposed to they would in the past? They, would they have personalities in the past? Now, now they're a bit more coached and they're a bit media friendly. Um, I think, yeah, I think people maybe are a bit more cautious now. I think access has changed big time now. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays when you're approaching players or managers for interview, you have to go through a few layers of the communication department, media department, whatever. You know, whereas I guess in those days, you know, you had, you had phone numbers and you just you just phone people up and it was very straightforward. And yeah. uh, whereas now it's, you know, you sometimes think that, Football clubs have got a media prevention department. You know, when you're trying to get get through to people, um, are they coached? I, it's it's probably I, I don't know. I mean, th- there was a time where there was a lot of media training going on with footballers uh, to sort of try and sort of arm them up to deal with any sort of difficult questions. I, th- I think because there's not much money in the game these days, I think that side of it's probably gone. So I'd, I'm not sure there is a lot of coaching of player interviews goes on. Uh, although um, if anyone's listening and they want me to do it for them, I'm happy to uh, come in as a media training consultant. But um, no, I, d- I don't think there's a lot of that goes on at the moment. But I-, I think players are probably the same as they were, to be honest. I think, you know, you get ones that are naturally cautious and play with a straight bat and you get other guys that you ask a question and they answer it and they don't really think about it too much. And, and that 
that's quite refreshing. I think we all like that approach when you we actually hear something as if somebody's speaking from the heart rather than telling you something of a reading something of a press release. So you mentioned there about media training. Um, you you do that away from the the sort of limelight of commentating and presenting. You do your your media training. Um, why did you get into that? Um, you obviously seem to be really busy with that. Did, did you just want to give something back? Pass on your wisdom. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I do, you know, I do a bit of media training. I, I do a bit of um, university teaching, as you know. Um, it, you know, which which is a nice way of sort of pa- passing on some knowledge and, ma- and maybe giving a bit of a helping hand. Uh, you know, to to guys like yourself who are looking to get in, get involved in this in this industry. Uh, the media training is actually. You know, most it's mostly non-sports organisations that, that I've that I've worked with. Just people who want to be given a bit of nouse about how to deal with an awkward press conference, an awkward interview. You know how things happen, how things can go horribly wrong, and we see it every day, don't we? You know, in, in politics and news, and, and sometimes in football as well. Uh, people that probably should know better put their foot in it, uh, and had they sort of thought about it for a while and maybe been schooled in it a bit, uh, these things become actually pretty straightforward and pretty easy and you can be relaxed about it. Um, but, you know, I think I think social media, I mean, we, we see clips on a daily basis, don't we, of people making a complete arse of it, yeah. uh, you know, and, you know, that, that's where media training can help, you know, in sort of not just crisis management, but, but actually, you know, dealing just with daily awkward situations where, you know, Lots of reporters are are basically got the bait on the end of the hook and just hoping that the the guy behind the podium is going to snap at it and very often they do and and get it all horribly wrong. So yeah, so you know I do all sorts of different bits and bobs, but I mean certainly the the thing I enjoy most is, is going to a football match, be it commentating or or being in the studio. Um, you know I love all that and and uh, I'm going to continue to do it once football returns. So um, you you mentioned the the best games and things you've covered. I'm I'm just going to come on to a, a wee bit of a wee bit of fun. Um, maybe looking back at your best memories, your your favourite things from your career. Um, have you have you got a favourite line or anything that you've ever you ever said during a a piece of commentary? Not not really. But I, funnily enough, I just I watched the I watched that um, the Motherwell Motherwell six six game uh-huh. game the other night. Uh, you know, and I actually I couldn't remember. What, what had happened when Lukas Jutkovic scored that 12th goal of the game at Fir Park and, and when, I, when I watched it back, I, basically I just shrieked. Uh, Des McEwen was a co-commentator with me. It was actually a radio commentary that was transplanted onto the TV pictures. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I just, I just kind of, I think we both just kind of screamed when that goal went in because it was just so amazing. Third minute stoppage time, 12 goals in a game. And it was just that that was that was unbelievable. But I mean, one one line that, that only came to me really recently that I'd uttered in a match uh, was I mean I'd, I'd actually seen the the Twitter handle for quite for for a few years and, and I didn't know the significance of it. And and it's also I think uh, maybe it's the title of a YouTube channel as well. And it was the 1998 um, again before you were born before you say it. Uh, Scottish Cup final where Hearts beat Rangers and Stefan Adams, the French guy, scored the scored the winning goal, and it was only when I, I, I 
I saw a clip of that goal, and at one point in the commentary, I saw I say Amaruso lets it run, uh-huh. and then and then Stefan Adam scores, and you know, so so it's a big moment obviously for Hearts fans, and there's this Hearts fan who runs that site, and it's, it's called Amaruso lets it run, and for a long time I didn't realise what it meant, and you know that that's where you know somebody's just taking a little chunk of commentary. Uh, and and it's become their mantra sort of thing because it's such a special moment in in the lives of Hearts supporters. You know that day they beat they beat Rangers and Stefan Adam scored the winning goal. You you must have worked with lots of co commentators, um, some good, maybe some bad. Have you got have you got a favourite one? Ali McCoy's is probably hard to beat. To be honest, uh-huh. um, when, when you're commentating with him, you know you feel as if you're standing at the bar with a pint in your hand. To be honest, which can be a bit dangerous because you could end up saying stuff you don't want to say. But um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 he's he's you can have a laugh with him while you're doing it. I mean, it, you know, obviously it's easier to have a laugh if the Scottish team is doing well at the time. Say it's a European game and it's Rangers or whatever, uh, and it's going well, then you can have a bit of fun and stuff like that. Not so easy if, if the result is going against them, but. I just like his style. He's very natural. Uh, you, you know, you can bounce off each other and have a bit of banter and all the rest of it. And I, I was, I, I like a sort of doing it in a very natural sort of fashion rather than you know being too organised and too pre-planned. So um, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of uh, uh, a lot of people that I've worked alongside um, that have been great. I mean, that that. The Lee Griffiths match, it was Stuart McCall, the former Rangers and Scotland midfielder. He was co-coming at Hamden that day when those two Lee Griffiths goals rocketed in. And uh, he was shouting and screaming in the background as well. He was, you know, he, he was great. He's a great guy. And, you know, see when it's kind of, when it's natural like that, I think it's really good. And I think that comes across quite well. And people, I think, warm to that sort of thing rather than it being too sort of uh, clinical and organised. Um, has, has anything ever gone sort of terribly wrong or a bit tits up, anything like that? Yeah. Um, loads, to be honest. Uh, difficult. It's always difficult to remember when somebody asks you that question. But, I mean, when you're doing m- – most of the stuff I've ever done has been live. So, uh-huh. you know, yeah, this stuff is going to go wrong on a, on a probably on a daily basis. And, and the main thing is, uh, is that you kind of crack on. When you make a mistake, don't worry about it. Don't let it get you down. Uh, that's probably where I've improved on, on my career because probably when I was younger, I used to let things like that get to me. Whereas now, I probably just sweep them away and carry on because the worst thing you can do is let it affect your ongoing performance sort of thing. But I mean, there's one going back to local radio days when I was um, when I was covering Aberdeen, winning the European Cup Winners' Cup, and we also covered Aberdeen. Obviously, following day came back to Union Street in the open top bus, hundred thousand people went out in the city centre to welcome them back. And I was out covering it in the, the radio car for North Sound. I was behind, we were behind the, the open top bus. So describing everything. And then, but then it got to the stage where there were so many people that got bogged down, it all stopped, it all ground to a halt. So the open top bus was going nowhere. And I'd painted all the pictures I could possibly have painted and what I was saying. So got out, decided to speak to a few people, but I had to be careful picking them because it was live, you know, so I had to be careful who I spoke to. Mm-hmm. So I was choosing everyone very carefully. It was all going really well. And I, so I spoke to this little girl and I said to her, you know, what's your name? She said, Mary Ann. Where are you from? Kitty Brewster. That's an area in Aberdeen. And I said, how old are you? She said, I'm 12. I said, all right. And who's your favourite Aberdeen player? She said, Gordon Strachan. And I said, why is that? And she said, and she looked at me and she said, because he's fucking fantastic. <laughs> So, so that went out. That went out. That went out live on North Sound. Mm-hmm. So my career almost ended there and then. Um, so that thing, things like that. I mean, it's so 
And that's what makes it so exciting in a positive way as well. That kind of you're live and dangerous all the time as well, and things can go wrong. Strachan must be another one, obviously coming on to him as a manager. He must have kept on your toes a few times. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I knew him, uh, knew him uh, as a player at Aberdeen, and you know, I've had. I remember when he was manager of Southampton. I used to, I was sending him chewing the fat tapes, you know, because chewing the fat uh, DVDs or whatever, because he was trying, to, you know, keep keep tabs on the Scottish entertainment industry. Found that he found chewing the fat really funny, um, and uh, yeah, and I, I obviously I've I knew I've known him all the way along the line. Probably Celtic manager, Scotland manager. Um, uh, I mean, he can be a bit nippy, you know, he can be a nippy sweetie. There's no doubt about that. Um, but he's one of the funniest guys you can meet as well. I mean, he is, he is a live wire. Uh, he's, you know, and I just think he's, he's a great pundit as well nowadays. You know, yeah, he, yeah. He's, uh, you know he, he's just, he, he can be funny. He can be very critical, you know, and I think he's, and I think he's at the stage now where he says what he thinks and he's not really too bothered if he upsets anybody. Have you got any favourite players or managers from your time? Obviously, you had a good um, upbringing with, Sir Alex Ferguson, but is there anybody that, that stood out to you that you know you've maybe formed relationships with? Uh, thinking recently and working back, I mean, um, you know, Neil, I like Neil Lennon a lot. Um, he and he's done fantastically well. I love, I like the fact that he's kind of confounded his critics really because nobody was that excited about him when he replaced Brendan Rodgers. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, he's. I mean, he's kind of superseded what Brendan Rodgers did. Not not the number of trophies, maybe, but I mean, he's kind of shifted Celtic up a gear, I think, uh, since then. I mean, I go back a little further, and, you know, I was speaking about Alec Ferguson earlier on. I mean, Graeme Souness, I interviewed Graeme Souness a fair bit when he was Rangers manager, and uh, I loved doing that because you had to be on your top game when you were interviewing him, otherwise he would chew you up. Because he didn't, he's never been a guy to suffer fools. He's still the same on in his, doing his Sky punditry. Uh, and he was Rangers manager, you know, he would sometimes give you a yes or no answer if that was the question that uh-huh. begged it. And uh, so you had to be on your toes. You had to have the next question ready because otherwise he, he would just leave in the middle of an interview if you didn't have enough questions ready for him. So, um, what were, what yeah, were I mean... Like that as well with um, Chick Young, I think it was. That's right. That's right. Where I think he was, he was he threatened to put the microphone where the sun doesn't shine. I think, and during that legendary interview with Chick, but but, um, but I mean, soon I said great um, presence. You know, he, again, like 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 Fergie. Uh, you know, he was a guy with you know that had a real aura about him. You know, he, and and he, everything he said tended to mean something. So um, you know, it was a great way of sharpening your tools as an interviewer, working with somebody like him because you know you had you had to be on your game, otherwise. You were going to go back with a twenty-second interview where you were looking for three or four minutes. So, um, just just to wrap up um, on the podcast, we well, I, I like to look back at um, your career sort of as a whole. It's called the Full Time Whistle Podcast. So, sort of when when the Full Time Whistle signals the, the the end to your career, how, how would you look back on everything? Uh, you, you've you've not you've not done badly at all from a for a guy from Invergordon. So, are you, are you sort of proud of all your achievements? Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think you have to give yourself a pat on the back at times. Um, you know, sometimes I think as maybe as Scottish people, we're not we're not very good at doing that for ourselves. But uh, yeah, I mean, 
when I was a kid, I probably watched these sports scene programs and, and sort of dreamt that I, I might be involved. I probably wanted to be a footballer at that stage, but, but if, I, if I knew I wasn't going to be a footballer, then probably presenting sports scene and commentating on World Cups and stuff, that, you know, I, I wouldn't have believed that was possible coming from where I came from. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have to be, I have to be happy about a lot of the good things that have happened. I feel very okay about uh, a lot of the stuff's happened because I think my career's, you know, kind of gone, not been much to do with me at times. But yeah, I'm still, I'm still, I'm, I'm glad you're speaking in the present tense because I'm still going mm-hmm. and uh, I'm keen to get back into it as soon as possible. So when uh, football resumes and I think we have to be realistic about when that's going to be, it's going to be a while yet. But the main thing is that it does come back and that, you know, as many Scottish clubs survive as possible, uh, and when it comes back, I'll be happy to come back with it. So yeah, I'm looking looking forward to get back and get back getting back into what is a a, a dream job, and I, I know it's a it's the sort of job that you're you're looking for yourself as well somewhere down the line. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Rob, thank you very much for for coming on. Um, I really appreciate it, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Good speaking to you, Callum. All the best. Thank you very much for listening to the Full Time Muscle Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the second episode. If you did. Why not subscribe on the platform you listened on, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Anchor, and leave a review. Constructive criticism is always welcome, as well as any suggestions of what you think could be improved. All updates and announcements will be made on Twitter. The handle is at the FT Whistle Pod, so give it a follow to make sure you don't miss out on anything. As well, give it a share and spread the word so the Full-Time Whistle Podcast can continue to grow. Thank you very much again for listening and all the best. Cheers.